0: This show is part of the Electric Agora network of podcasts.
1: Sheena Mason, how are you?
0: I'm well. How are you, Kevin? Good.
1: Kevin. Good. We haven't we haven't talked in a while.
0: It feels like it's been a long time. Yes.
1: It has. Uh, I think you were under the weather a few weeks ago. We had to postpone, but ho- hopefully uh, you had a restful uh, holiday. Yes. Break and are, are back to it.
0: Yes. Thank you. I am feeling better.
1: Good should probably turn on my light cuz my lighting in here is uh that's I'm a little bit brighter now. Yeah, you are.
0: All
1: right. All right. <laughs> nice. So uh yeah, we were just kind of talking before we recorded and you were you were telling me about a, a recent very recent publication and uh that you're getting some some backlash <laughs> on social media. Say it ain't so. But that's a great that's segue cool. because we're going to be talking about all things social media and conversation and all the vitriol that that goes on. So, why don't we start there? That's that's a great place to start.
0: Yeah, so I have an essay out in the Journal of Free Black Thought. It's a journal on Substack and the it's getting a lot of, you know, feedback and we're getting a lot of interest. The journal founders actually contacted me and told me that um it's getting more attention than basically anything they've published wow. which i take to be a good thing and at first the comments all seemed very reasonable right because um you can comment on journals in substack right underneath and you can and also of course if you're not using twitter you're my friend told me you're not doing it right you're not advertising so um
1: I'm not doing it right. Just preview. I'm not doing it right. So,
0: so Free Black Thought and myself were both on Twitter. So we're both advertising the publication. And the tweet takes off. I haven't had a viral tweet ever. Um, I've only been at I admittedly, I've only started using Twitter for the last two and a half months after I had the conversation with my friend. So this is my first tweet that gets actual attention. And I noticed once it got past a certain number of likes and retweets, then the hateful mm. reply started coming in. And this morning I, mm. I woke up to, uh, it was a tweet. It was something to the effect of white people still don't like you, even though you took time to write this crap for them. You're anti-black mm. Dot, mm. Dot, dot, mm. dot, 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 yep. dot. So that, that was, that was the tweet uh, that's standing out in my mind as the most um I don't know if the word hateful is it, but the most sort of self-projecting type of tweet that a person could do with the intent to harm the other person. But as you right. can see, I'm pretty cheerful about it because, yeah. listen, I, I'm i kind of of the belief that when the hateful stuff starts coming in, then you know you're doing something right. Um, that's,
1: that's a good way to look at it. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's a good way to look. So so let's go back. And so give me the synopsis, give us the synopsis of this article so that we can better understand kind of why there's why there's any sort of backlash and what that comment meant in relation to the article.
0: So it lays out my theory of racistness. I talk about the six philosophies of race very succinctly. I talk a little bit about the background of the creation of of the concept of race as we now think of it in the United States. Um, I give my coining of of my spelling for the words racism, anti-racism, and the title is something like Theory of Racelessness, A Case for Um, Anti-Racism, To Eliminate Racism, We Must Eliminate Race. So that gives you a sort of overview of what the the piece is actually about, and then I close with something provocative like One Question Remains, Am I Black? And mm, if mm-hmm. you decide to put, if you insist to place me on the racialist hierarchy, then, um, then that's that's on you or something like that. Mm. But who are you to tell me who I am? It's something that that effect. Yeah. So,
1: and for those who are interested in your ideas on uh, racelessness, of course, I, I can link to that to the article. But we also have two conversations before this one where we go over kind of in, in pretty good detail, kind of what what that is, why, you're, um, why you think the idea of race should be eliminated rather than that we should see it as a social construction, stuff like that. So we go through all that. Um, yeah, so it, it's interesting that, okay, so, and that seems to be the general trend is an article will get a lot of kind of positive or reasonable comments. And then after a certain tipping point, that's when the vitriol, Will come out. That's when people are not only going to say you're wrong, but like this person did, um, in some ways go beyond you're wrong and say, here's why you're either stupid and a dupe or you're evil.
0: Or, like, or you're racist. If you're anti black, you're, yeah. you're racist, right? Right, right. <laughs> it's
1: I, I wonder why that is. Why is it that, it, why is it that an article will go through a certain comment period where it's like, kind of, oh, this is pretty reasonable? and then only after a while it seems to produce that. I don't know if you have any ideas on that.
0: Well, I think it's because if if the publication came out and nobody paid attention to it and it just died in obscurity, you know, <laughs> then um people wouldn't feel it was a threat, so they wouldn't feel inclined to come out and try to lambast and silence you. Because at the end of the day, I mm. think even if it's on a subconscious level, people who are the loudest and in many ways the meanest on these different social media spaces are the same people who want you to shut up. And so Mm. for a weaker-minded person, that person not being me, those kinds of comments could be hurtful enough to make me just go in a tailspin and doubt myself and just stop talking, right? Like stop amplifying my knowledge. Uh, I think that's the hope and the intent. And actually, one of the founders of Free Black Thought, Eric Smith, I met with him a few months ago. We had an unrelated conversation, but he told me at that time, the people who are the loudest and the people who are going to be the loudest, if you haven't started already receiving some hateful commentary, um, it's going to come. And I want you to hear this when I say, when it comes, their primary objective is to intimidate you into silence. And Mm. I hope you don't fall for it. So I I I really think that's that's what it's about.
1: I mean, I think it's also really insightful on your part, though, that it's also it's not just about intimidating you into silence. It's about undermining your credibility in the eyes of others so that no one else will take you seriously either, which is why it's not just you're wrong and here's why. But I'm going to take your point seriously enough to try to tell you why you're wrong. It's, I want to show, I want to show other people that you're unreliable.
0: It has to be And that's either, Mm -hmm. and that's
1: either you're stupid and a dupe, which in this case, it sounds like they're saying, oh, you're being duped by white people. So don't pay attention to Sheena because she's being duped by white people. (laughs) Or it would be you're evil. um, Or it would be like, you're racist and you can't realize how wrong you are. But those comments are, I mean, they're directed towards you, like ostensibly. Yeah. But they're really directed towards other people. Yes. Hey, everyone else, don't take this person seriously, and here's why they're unreliable.
0: Exactly. That's why I'm convinced. That's why I remain convinced that that those that kind of messaging really only comes after you've gotten a certain amount of attention. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because yeah. otherwise, yeah. what's the point? If people, but once you see pe- like so many people are taking it seriously, retweeting it, saying how great of an insightful of an essay it is, and all such stuff. Now somebody needs to come. And in a very public manner, tell you you're racist, which is the same as if I'm, if I'm looking at a retweet of the same essay, and I look at the comments, and I see um, a racialized black person, which that was the person in this case, at least from the picture, you never know, because it's Twitter, but the picture is a racialized black man um, saying you're anti-black. And we know, especially in this space of all things anti-racism, that the fear people have right or wrong is of being racist or being found out to be racist, right. Or to be labeled racist. And so if you're, if you're reading that, the essay you come across the tweet and you see that kind of feedback from a so-called black person, it is going to put some amount of alarm bells, you know, in your mind, depending on who you are. I, I like to think more people are, can see through that kind of thing at this point, but, but you never know in this day and age, especially with how media works.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I it's like there's a gap between I would like to think that people are capable of and like I'm looking out and seeing what people seem to be capable of. And there's this big difference between those two. I mean, one of the reasons um, I, I propose the idea of talking about conversation in the social media age as a topic is because I've found myself increasingly just disaffected with it part of it is that it just seems so futile. Like the only people you're ever going to convince seem to be the people who already agree with (laughs) the position you have. Like if you expect anything more than that, um, there's no social media platform where you'll get that. And then secondly, it just, it's become boring to me. I just noticed that I I was just, it was one afternoon. I'd I'd spent, you know, a, a fair amount of time conversing with people on, on social media is like, you know, it seems to be boring. Like I, I know what people are going to say. I know what people are going to say in response. I know what the response to that's going to be. I feel like I'm caught in these situations where I'm basically having the same conversation over and over with people. Um, and I was never a big user to begin with. It was really Facebook and and my several failed Twitter attempts um, so I guess I use what what could be called old people social media i guess um but it does it doesn't seem to you know it just doesn't seem to provide a whole lot of value at this point. I don't know, I guess the best way to frame it may be like you're. I'm going to guess that there's a fair age difference between us. I'm in my early forties. I don't, I don't ask people's ages. If you ever (laughs) want to disclose that you could, but obviously, you know uh, it's well within your rights not to do that, but uh, it seems like I'm on the downswing and you're on the upswing. So this is an interesting, uh, this could be two different angles here. I don't know.
0: Yeah. It's interesting um, to hear your perspective and, uh, and unsurprising because I'm, Sure, you're not alone in in your in those sentiments. I actually view social media as part of my research, so it helps me to maintain interest. though I will say, so I'm very new to Twitter uh within the last three months that's when I started actually using a Twitter account that I created in April <laughs> of twenty twenty one but Ooh. never did a tweet or f- followed a tweet or anything. My friend told me. Because of theory of racistness, he saw it as a solution to the stuff that's going on. So he had a whole meeting with me and was like telling me about Twitter and saying, if you're not on Twitter, you're not advertising and really you're not doing it right. So I trust him implicitly. I mean, he's just brilliant. So I, I trust him. So I started using Twitter and sure enough it is the case that whereas on Facebook or LinkedIn or Instagram, it's a very slow grow. Like it's painfully slow. You, you know, you're lucky to get a yeah. follower a week. It doesn't seem to matter how brilliant your content is. Right. It's so slow. Um, well, on Twitter, I, we went from zero followers to over 500 now in, in two and a half months, which is, it That's probably uncommon. The publication helped. I mean, just yesterday alone, which was the day of the Free Black Thought publication, something like over 150 followers to my Sheena account and the Theory of Racistness account. Hmm. So, you know, if you're if you're if you're doing it right, because there is a sort of formula to it, you can grow really, really fast and you can your ideas can spread like wire wildfire for better or for worse. <laughs> um yes. I think that the the implementation of something called Twitter spaces is a place where I go in and I like to learn from people because ultimately at the end of the day, I'm always testing my ideas. And part of how I test it is actually look at what people are saying on social media and, and does it vibe with the sort of general impressions I get about how people think about certain things and yada, yada, yada. Um, And that, that to me can admittedly get a little boring because yeah, I mean, nobody is really saying anything groundbreaking or unexpected. It's all more of the same stuff and I I do get tired of it sometimes, but I still I still engage, I still look, I still listen. But more than that, I think I've also expanded my focus to make sure that I'm a voice that's an alternative to the nonsense cuz I know I'm not the only person. I know it's a small circle. Right. Of people who are working to abolish the concept of race. But there are people who are working to abolish the concept of race. And so I use it for networking. I use it. I've been invited on uh, other people's podcasts. We didn't meet that way, but we met on YouTube. So it's kind of similar. Well, it,
1: it's similar. Um,
0: yeah. I get invited to radio shows, like all kinds of doors open that otherwise wouldn't be open. A literary agent contacted me. There are definitely some upsides. i got in touch and learned a free black thought because of Twitter. Um, there are definitely some upsides, but I think you have to be interested in taking advantage of those and you have to be willing to, to grapple with the downsides too, which can be a sort of um, yeah, just be, like not wanting to fall into contentment and not being simulated in certain ways in terms of ideas that's, yeah. that's a real thing. Oh, and also I will say I'm 37. I turned 38 in June. So okay, I'm not so, not so far. far, far. Sure. Yeah, I'm not so much younger, but I appreciate the, the compliment. Cause... Like,
1: well, I, I mean, because I remember, you know, I am of the last generation. I always tell students this. And at this point, they're so much younger than me that they sort of chuckle at it. But um, I'm of the age that remembers what it was like not to grow up with social media. And if I'm being honest, not to grow up without the Internet like I remember in college, a few edgy professors were like, you can email me your projects. And we're like, no, I'm just going to stop by your office because I don't really, I don't do that. Um, It was really only after college that, that, that started happening. And then it was in, must've been, it was, I think my late twenties, early thirties when like Facebook and Twitter kind of really came out and, in some ways, like you, I was introduced to Facebook through um, when I went to do my PhD in education. There was like a, you know, graduate student Facebook group and, you know, all that stuff. And it's like, stay networked with everybody and this will be great. And so that's when I got in, into it. But yeah, I, I don't know what it's like to to grow up with, with social media. I, I don't know what that's like. But I mean... Another reason that that I thought we should have a discussion about this was because I teach an intro to diversity class for undergraduates, and we talk about kind of all the hot button diversity areas: diversity of race, diversity of sexuality, um, gender identity, things like that. And several students throughout the early part of the semester started kind of making comments here or there, whether it was in the class or to me after class, where they're like, "It's it's." pretty much impossible to talk about these things in any genuine way on social media spaces. You just can't do it. Even the social media spaces they're using Snapchat, Instagram, um, just, you can't, you can't do it. Um, And the more I heard that from students, whether again, privately or publicly in class, the more I was like, well, maybe this is something we should talk about in class. Because I remember the goal of social media At least the stated goal was that this is going to introduce us to more and more diversity and we'll become more open minded because we'll hear like different people and everyone will have a voice, unlike what's happened before. Um, And this will be great. It'll kind of open up the world. And in some ways, I think it has done some of that. But in other ways, it's like it's really polarized people. It's it's done almost the opposite of what it was supposed to do. So then the question is like, why? So I started researching that. And I brought in some, some of the findings to students. And we had some really interesting conversations about it. And before you know it, this became one of the themes of the class. It was like, how does social media affect things like how we see other people who are different from us? Does it make us more accepting and tolerant? Does it make us less quick to pass judgment? No, it actually kind of makes us more quick to pass judgment. It seems like stereotypes are 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 more likely thanks to our social media experience. It's
0: but you know, I think that's largely because well first of all it's interesting because earlier you said um it was something to the effect of when you were sort of doing the social media thing, it often felt like you were just talking to or with people who already agree with you. And so then it's kind of like, okay, what's the point? Because you're in your own sort of echo chamber. But then based off of what you just said, it strikes me that if if it if students find it hard to have meaningful conversations about important topics and things like that on social media, it strikes me that they're not, talking to people who already agree with them then because the lack of meaning comes into play when you say something and then people come and sort of like want to social media fight with you, right? About whatever it is that you said or how you said it, that sort of thing. And so I think there there's a little bit of, um, of muddiness that I want to emphasize because I I've heard the sentiment that you initially expressed before too, where, um, in a we, I had like a, a work meeting and folks were talking about this. Some people feeling like uh, the best way to market is to talk to to preach to the choir in a way to your own choir. But then somebody else was sort of disagreeing, and saying, "No, I actually think you should be speaking to the people who aren't in the choir yet, um, <laughs> or you should do both. You shouldn't just exclude o- other people." And I find myself feeling um, in a unique place in the sense that my ideas, by and large, aren't accepted by almost all people. Like they, because they don't yeah. even know; they're not even educated in in what I bring to the table enough to really have an opinion. And people's initial responses often disagreement until they fully understand what I'm talking about. And then they feel compelled because again, there is this fear of they don't want to be on the wrong side of the conversation. Um, And so my choir is admittedly very, very small. There's like, there's like five, five people and everyone knows everyone's name and everyone thinks to connect you with that one other person and Mm. it's like it's it's very small it feels like a very small world on on twitter especially um and so you know i embrace holding my feet to the fire and talking to people who aren't going to be familiar with the ideas that i'm expressing and and might not Mm. have heard them coming really from anywhere else um and in that way I, i i think the benefit of social media can be to sharpen, sharpen one's toolkit, you can have a meaningful conversation, you can have meaningful conversations on social media. But oftentimes, we, the the participants or the sort of initiator of any conversation are the ones who are can be unwilling to have the meaningful, you know, underlying mm-hmm. meaningful part, right? If if somebody disagrees with what we say, then we might get on the defense as opposed to actually trying to understand where they're coming from, and vice versa. Yeah. And so I think I think what social media what social media can do is if teachers and educators especially as college uh, professors are aware of the sort of upsides to social media as well as how students can perceive the downsides I think integrating those skills of being able to have meaningful conversations and um being able to sort of put on the back burner even just a little bit one's emotions <laughs> and attachment to to one's own ideas to really understand where a person is coming from, not f- necessarily for the other person, but for yourself, <laughs> because it helps you grow as a human being. It helps you grow your ideas. And, it, and in my instance, it helps me know how to package the information in a way that's received better and better and better across time. Mm. Um, I think that that cannot be devalued. And the thing that I hear from my students mostly about social media, though, isn't really anything to do with that. It's more it's more the fact that part of the roadblocks to having more meaningful conversations isn't just the personal, it's the fact that Google, so all of the software that's on the phones is going to present you with information and other pages that you would agree with. It's going to present you with your choir. <laughs> And so, and then you, and many people don't know to look for what other people are saying. And in that way, I think that is the downside because we don't encourage young people. We don't even often encourage ourselves to seek out the other voices that are part of whatever conversation. That's why you have the, you know, the divisiveness that comes around all of these cases that get Because when I think of media, I think of social media, yes, but I also think of, you know, like news outlets and things because they infiltrate social media spaces um, and they help people create really, really strong opinions that they feel wed to. And then they don't expose you to the other side. I think I think that that is a skill that our students need to really learn that we need to learn for ourselves like we need to question everything and we need to know to go seek out those other voices so that the algorithm presents you with a with a rounder you know plate or menu of of voices as opposed to a single perspective
1: yeah yeah um yeah, you know, you mentioned some really interesting stuff there. I guess this 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 dialogue may end up being you being the optimist and me being the pessimist and and us trying to convince each other on, on that. Um because one of the 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 interesting things that you said there was that um talked about the incentive structures. So when I was doing research for my students, because I really thought this maybe I should bring in some stuff about this. Um I really looked at two voices who are kind of trying to explain why social media and regular media are so kind of divisive and prone to, to stereotyping. Um, and the two voices are in the social media space, uh, a technologist named Jaron Lanier. Um, and then in the regular media space, uh, a journalist named Matt Taibbi. I don't know if you've, you've, um, kind of looked at their work or heard of them, but if not, listeners should kind of look at what they say. So Jaron Lanier's, um, criticisms of social media are in a book called 10 arguments for deleting your social media accounts. And then Matt Taibbi's critiques of regular media are in a book called hate incorporated. And you can see a lot of, if you look at like, they do a lot of stuff through YouTube and other places kind of airing these arguments and they have everything to do with incentives. You're right that a lot of it is that we're kind of partitioning ourselves. But I think what they would say is that, yeah, Google, New York times, all these companies, Fox news, They sort of know that there's a great incentive. If they want to keep you engaged, the best thing to do is make you a partisan. It turns out that we really like being in these groups of people that agree with us. And we really hate being confronted with intelligent pictures of the other side. So Jaron Lanier's work basically comes down to saying Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter, Snapchat, even um, TikTok, they are monetized, obviously not by the users. They're monetized by advertisers. And because of that, their incentive is to keep you engaged, no matter how that works. They don't care to keep you engaged in a happy way if if it turns out that enraging you will actually be better. And it actually turns out that enraging you is better. Um, So what Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok will do is feed you a stream of stuff that not only confirms your beliefs, because that's like a drug, but the opposite enrages you at, look how stupid the other people are. Look at how evil everything is. You're on the side of right. They want to convince you that you're on the side of right. So not only are they showing you stuff that you'll agree with on your feed that confirms you, but they'll show you stuff that confirm, confirms your idea that the other side is evil. So for, let's say, the progressive left, that's going to be convincing you that racism is everywhere, fascism is everywhere. It's a huge threat. For the right wing, that's going to be con- confirming your idea that communism is everywhere and socialism is everywhere and 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 that, right? So it's almost this mere opposite thing. And for Matt Taibbi, he points out that really with this, it was really Fox News was the one that figured out that the formula is in an age of cable news where everyone, where, where you know, like um, you don't have to appeal to everybody just like you did on network TV said really their strategy was let's pick a market and dominate it. They said, let's pick 50 plus people who are like conservative. And let's feed them a steady stream of stuff that will keep them coming back to us. And then they did that and it worked really well. And then, you know, all the other cable news outlets started doing that and it worked really well. So, but they picked like, so... MSNBC picked the opposite. Let's pick like kind of liberal slash progressive folks who are in their 50s and let's feed them a stream of stuff. And then really, I mean, it's just the internet accelerated that. So if you want to have a viable news outlet, you need to pick a certain market that believes a certain thing and let's feed them the stuff that they want. So, you know, Matt's point is that it doesn't take long before every news article becomes like a political litmus test. Whereas the, you know, the people who are going to read it are either the people who are, who agree with you and they just want to see confirmation or people who don't agree with you, but will see you as like the enemy. And it will just reinforce their belief that, ah, see that other side is dangerous. So it's, it's, it's this really interesting feedback loop. Um, And one of Jaron's points that I thought was interesting for the class was that he said that basically in some ways you become the algorithm. Um, And by that, he means that if the algorithm wants to keep you engaged, there's two ways to do it. The algorithm can become better at predicting you or the algorithm can nudge you to become more like it. And he says in reality, both of those are going on. And a lot of it is you become more like the algorithm because you're fed a certain stream of stuff that nudges your tastes just a little bit to become more like the algorithm. And now the algorithm can predict you better, not because it became better, but because you became flatter. And that's really interesting and disturbing.
0: Yeah, that is interesting and disturbing because um, something that stood out to me is how anger is motivating Uh, And isn't that, isn't that sad? Uh, But it is, it is one of the, probably one of our strongest human emotions. Right. And so there is a way in which I think anyone with common sense, I would like to think anyone with common sense can see how this works in the real world, right. How people are really driven by anger and the kind of hilarity of it. It, well, it probably would be more hilarious if it wasn't so bad for our society, but I find humor everywhere. The hilarity- If George
1: Skyler were writing it, if, if, if to go back to our <laughs> previous conversation, if George Skyler were writing it, it would be freaking hilarious. <laughs> he would find a way to make it the funniest thing you've ever
0: seen. He would. Um, that's probably why I love him so much. Um, so the hilarity of it is like, okay, let's take the Kyle Rittenhouse case, for example. So people who tend to lean right, conservatives, are were for Kyle's acquittal, right? Um, and they were outraged at mostly the left's response to the Rittenhouse case. And they, the response is like, wow, look at those progressives. They're so, um, stupid, (laughs) right? Like, and, and it was really, but it wasn't ever just a matter of fact thing. Like there was so much anger coming from people on the right toward the left about the response. People on the left were really angry with people on the right because they're like, of course, this isn't self defense. This is white supremacy, and you know, embodied and all of this other stuff, and so much anger and disdain for the other side. And what's the hilarious part is both sides are having basically the same reaction, but they're just drawing different conclusions. Uh, but they're reacting the same, and then they're accusing the other side of the same thing that they're doing and but, but seemingly not cognizant of the fact that they're doing the same thing they're accusing yeah. the other side of doing, yeah. and right well
1: it's it's in the nature of being a cult member that you don't think you're a cult member, right?
0: oh my gosh oh that that was like a sucker punch because around the mulberry bush we go, like this is this sort of psychology of and the irony of it all, and then somebody like myself who's like. Just a, a, a an observer a lot of the time because I'm really learning how people are thinking about these things. I'm primarily interested in epistemology, how people come to certain knowledge, and so I'm observing all of this stuff. And I'm just like shaking my head, you know, and also scratching my head and trying not to pull my hair out because of the of the venom. and the ad hominem attacks that are coming on all sides and the sort of infrequent um, happening of people who have differing opinions about the same thing actually having a conversation that looks civil and also meaningful it's a thing but it also strikes me that I think part of how media sets us up is to to inspire us to be pessimistic and to think that more people are on the extreme ends of the spectrum than not. Because it strikes Mm -hmm. me that the loudest voices on social media are the people who are on the, you know, they're basically on the polls or closer to the polls and that the average citizen is really closer to the center. And maybe that's me being naive and maybe that's me being very optimistic, maybe blindly optimistic, but I I think my conclusion for that is because what I see on the internet and what I see in real life, it's often two different things, right? It's, it's like, I find people to be very reasonable in real reality. Um, And I have the good fortune of meeting a lot of people through theory of racistness and my students, I teach my students philosophies of race these are concepts that they've never been um, presented with it flies in the face of what they come into the class believing and thinking they're going to learn and by the end of the semester they they are completely transformed for the better and they're questioning everything and they feel happy happier because they're not weighted down weighed down by the nonsense that they often come into the class carrying so I find people in reality to be very, very reasonable, but then you go to a place like Twitter and you see the venom and, and the unwillingness to actually engage in, and dialogue. And I think it's kind it's kind of, um, I think it's kind of a setup. And I think that's where hmm. you start to get linkages, especially for young people and an increased amount of depression and things like that, because of the, um, because of their persistent engagement with social media, Um, I think it's a setup. And I think, like you said, at the root of the setup is capitalism. It is the fact that people are monetizing anger. They're monetizing divisiveness. They're monetizing people being on their side because they know what's going to get the clicks. They know what's going to bring them back to their content. And so it's like this strange sort of matrix for me of like seeing what happens on social media versus talking with people in real life. And actually learning that more people are reasonable. And I think that's where my optimism gets maintained because I get to, I get to have both experiences.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Like this isn't the real world. Like when you go on Twitter, you're fully aware that like this, this may or may not reflect the divisions that actually exist elsewhere. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, my, my rule for social media right now, and really at this point I'm, I'm not on Twitter. Um, um, so really, it's it's really only Facebook at this point. Um, my rule is that I will comment on people's posts and threads if I feel like it's a worthwhile thing. If it's something I want to suck a certain amount of time into, um, I will do it and I will not post anymore. Like I've wanted to post, I've thought about posting. It's like, but do I really like, is that really important enough that I want to post something so that I feel like I have to go back and comment on it. See, that's the other thing that I'm starting to realize. Like, I I don't know, maybe it's, you know, maybe it's it's just getting older or whatever, but I just, I don't feel like I want the battle as much as I used to. And when, when social media becomes a battle, it's like, you know, great. Uh, do I really want to put that opinion out there? Or do I just want to believe something and not have to defend it all the time? which in some ways is bad because you should want to defend your, your positions. But then on, in some ways I, I don't like, I don't know if you saw it's quite a few months ago. Now uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates very publicly quit Twitter. It was after a, a heated exchange with, with Cornell West. They had a very heated exchange. I think it got probably more heated than either of them really wanted to be. And they probably both had that moment where they look back at it and it's like a, you know, uh, uh, when you're hung over and you look back at your night of drunkenness and you're like, wow, that was, that was horrible. And I saw an interview with Coates a few months after where he was asked about why he quit Twitter and he's like, I can't think on Twitter. Twitter is not a place I can think. I thought I could do it and I, I can't, I like, I, I need to digest stuff first and believe things first and then start to think about what the responses would be. But on Twitter, it's instant. And you feel like you're just always on your heels. That was really interesting. It was really uh, insightful the way he put it. Um, and I guess I heard that voice in my head when I was thinking like, eh, do I really need to post that? No, I, I don't. I don't need to post that anymore. Like there's a nice, there's something nice about privacy. <laughs> of internal privacy.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I think the world would probably be a better place if more people practice that uh, or some semblance of that. But, And I also think it just depends on what your objectives are, right? If, In my instance, I look at it as a non-negotiable that I need to be engaged on social media because I'm trying to, not for nothing, start a movement, right? So I have to... I'd have to be engaged. Um, I keep thinking about at, you know, at some point theory of racistness will run out of runway. And so we'll have to hire contractors. And the first thing I wanted to get off of my plate and off of Lakeisha's plate was uh, social media, especially Twitter. But then I was like, well, how, how would that work? Because the person would literally have to be in my brain, be my brain, Mm -hmm. be me in Mm -hmm. order to talk in a voice. That's me. So how would that really work? And I think the only way that could work is if, Maybe I'm drafting the tweets, but they're the ones uh, replying to comments or something. I don't know, but in my mind even then,
1: they'd have to yeah, they'd have to reply in your voice, which would be
0: it would be hard depending on the person. like I know people who could do that, but it is, yeah. is a it's like nobody is me except me. so right. It, right. it's it's honestly it kind of sucks because um, even outside of if it's emotionally draining or anything it's it is labor. And it can be, you can, one can get to a place of like the day passes and you realize out of how twelve hours you spent eight on Twitter, you know, um, especially we've all done that. <laughs> we've all done this. especially on a day like yesterday when the publication came out and I was actually getting attention. And I was like, oh man, I got to try to keep up. It's first of all, it just gets impossible at some point. You just have to let go and be like, okay, not everyone's going to get a like or a reply or anything like that. Um, and and that's okay. You have to let go of some some amount of control, but um. But yeah, it's it's time consuming too. So I try to set parameters and, you know, if, it, if this comes up in conversation with my students, I would encourage them to do the same thing to where I'm not, I'm checking Twitter maybe first thing in the morning and then at the end of the day or something like that, as opposed to constantly, I turn my notifications off because that's, it's a psychological thing. You see that you have five outstanding notifications on Twitter or something and you want to check it, try to keep up with it and... I was like, that's just a, yeah. a losing game. So I turned the notifications off um, with the hope that and the, and the insight of my, knowing myself that that'll help me stay off, stay off of it longer. So, um, but yeah, and the, but then at the same time, I have to look at the sort of return of investment I'm getting because my objectives are different from yours. And, and really, I think from the average person's, it's like the engagement is 100% paying off because like I said, I've been able to grow that account in ways that you can't grow other accounts. I haven't had to spend a single, you know, dollar on Twitter ads or anything like that. And, um, and the, the traffic, the increased traffic to my website and the way that the traffic is sustained across time, like it's, there's Mm -hmm. a payoff there. Um, and
1: See, Jaron Lanier I, I calls that some sort of technological blackmail. <laughs> he, he suggests that one of the reasons Twitter is, and, and just social media in general, is so popular is because even when people don't feel like they would really prefer to be on it, it's sort of like you feel like you need to be on it because that drives traffic. Um, but now, of course, in your case, you, you'd say like you do want, like it's, it is worth the investment. But I think, like Lanier would say, but that's an investment that keeps people there longer than they would otherwise feel they need to be,
0: yeah, I think for the average person, that's probably the case, and I can't imagine why the average person would need to like increase their traffic or anything unless they have unless you have aspirations to monetize that or any of the platforms that you're on. Um, to me, if I wasn't Theory of Racistness, if I wasn't Sheena, Dr. Sheena Mason, I would probably be a nomad and just have a Facebook like I used to have and not be anywhere else and not be spending a lot of time on Facebook because I don't see the point. I like living my real life instead of living on social media. Um, and it's only because I have these other ambitions of unifying and helping people heal and bringing people together that I put as much time investment as I do into all of Mm. these different platforms. But I think for the average person, that's not the case. You know, they're Mm. not trying to quote unquote change the world or anything like that. They're just, um, trying to be social And for some people, I think it's an escape from the reality of their, their lives. And I think it can be a vicious cycle for folks because people live on social media. They put their perfect images of their lives on there and it gives people the false impression that everyone else's life is perfect. um, And mine is uh, what life actually is for most people, which is not perfect, right? It's imperfect. It's trying. And I think the psycho the psychological impact that social media has on people and spending particularly spending too much time on social media has on people is definitely detrimental and something that um that I think has been studied very well. I think there are compelling arguments out there for why people should probably delete their social media accounts. Um and at the same time, I think just for businesses you know or for like mine or or people who are really trying to affect change, I think the payoff is there, and I wouldn't call mm. that I wouldn't call that quote unquote blackmail because I'm willing a willing participant and and recognizing that um we spend a lot of time, especially and really only on Twitter now now that we know how it works uh because we have an, an end goal in mind, and for us, the payoff is 100 percent worth it. It's proving to be worth it. I mean, it's brought us yeah. business, which was the entire point. Um, right. And you can't you can't really have a greater impact if you don't have eyeballs on what you're doing. And Twitter is a great place to do that to get eyeballs. Right. Um, right. But it's not. It's certainly not the be all, end all either. Because if if we were to decide tomorrow, you know what? For whatever reason, this is like detrimental to our health or something. We're not going to use our Twitter accounts. Um, right. Then we would be okay. Like we would still find a way. Pe- businesses existed before Twitter, you know, and, and some businesses blew up and some didn't. Um, businesses existed before internet and social media. So there's a way to do it, and the sort of I guess what has become the the traditional way now is social media. There's a way to do it a sort of untraditional or non-traditional way. But, um, I also don't think, at least from my perspective, I don't think there's anything wrong. And I think it's actually more beneficial to keep up with the technology of the times, um, and to meet people where they are, which is, as we both, I think said on social media,
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean right, because because Tanahasie Coates can quit Twitter because he's Tanahassi Coates. Like he already has very big outlets and obviously a very well established name and a, a well-established reach. I think he's is he still at the, the Atlantic, I think. Um I think so. He may have moved on. But I do know he's again, at Howard right?
0: University, which is what I really care right. about because that's right. my alma mater. Right. right. <laughs> right. Sure.
1: Yeah, and um and Jaron Lanier can say all he wants that. Oh, you don't need to be on social media to kind of sell, sell books and have a name. Like, look at me. And I'm like, yeah, but you're a tech god. Like you help design virtual reality. People know who you are. So one thing I think then that that is a little bit of a difference between how you and I kind of view things right now, and maybe one of the reasons why I'm less motivated on social media is I think my my worldview has definitely um changed in a in a certain way. Um when I started social media, I used to be very, um, well, I guess politically, like I had a very strong worldview. I was kind of a libertarian kind of guy. Um, very convinced that like there was kind of a right way to, to, to do things and kind of like more willing to, I don't want to say be a crusader that puts it in a negative light, but I was definitely more willing to be like, someone is wrong on the internet today. I have to do justice. Um, and I think my worldview now is a much more kind of pluralistic one and almost more of a skeptical one. Like I'm very skeptical of 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 um I don't want to say yeah, I don't want to say right answers, but I'm very skeptical of the idea that the world that um either that right answers exist to certain questions or that there's a worldview that coherently orders can order all sorts of right answers together into one big Grand picture that we can arrive at if we try really hard, um, and I found myself. So here's a few situations where I found myself really hating social media. In certain cases, I just don't have a strong opinion about something. I, I'm just not sold on either side's position. Like, uh, okay, I'll just put it out there. Like, abortion is. I used to be very, very pro-choice. I'm still not very pro. Like, I'm still not sold on a pro-life position. But I don't think there's a knockdown, drag-out argument on either side. So whenever I'm on like a pro-choice thread, I say, okay, but okay, but that's, that's not a fair argument you're using because a pro-lifer can very easily respond to that in the following way. And when I'm on a pro-life thread, I do the same sort of thing. Um, or I have, a, or I have a, a position on a particular thing that, that is more nuanced than the established sides will allow. Um, I would say with critical race theory and all of the surrounding arguments, I'm that way. So again, it won't be uncommon for me to be on a a thread that's very anti-critical race theory and say, yeah, but that's not really fair to what critical race theorists generally say. They say the following. And same thing, if I'm on a very pro-critical race thread, I can pretty easily see where the cracks are there. And then the third is where I have strong opinions, but from issue A to issue B to issue C, I don't align with an established tribe. And in those three situations, which are becoming more and more of the situations for me, it gets really hard. So it, it, it gets really hard to like, because basically I end up seeing every thread is like a call to collectively worship and all the comments are a collective worship where everyone worships together. And then coming into that and disrupting it is almost like being the atheist who goes into a church and says, there is no God, and expecting people to treat you kindly.
0: Yeah, I'm just wondering um, where you see the differences, because everything you just said sounds like me. So,
1: yeah, I, I guess the difference is um, well, I wrote a, an article recently for the Electric Agora called the. Um, the activist and the skeptic. And I think I've told you about the situation. I won't mention names, but um, I was talking with a professor and we were talking about our teaching. And I was talking about, we were talking about, I was talking about a particular class that I had where we were talking about an issue that this professor cares a lot about. And I said, yeah, we read this article that I think you'd really like and we had a really great discussion on it. You should have heard it. Oh, in next class, I'm going to present the opposite side. I'm going to present something that disagrees with that. And the professor looked at me kind of like, this is where the, this is where like her head nodding kind of stopped and said, you're going to, you're going to present something opposing the right side of the, of things. She didn't really say it quite that way. And I was like, yeah, because, and the professor, if I were to, to kind of uh, summon her voice would say, Kevin, you're being irresponsible. There's a right side of this issue and there's a wrong side and you're going to present the wrong side and you're not going to call it out as the wrong side. And students are probably already predisposed to believe that wrong side because that wrong side allegedly is everywhere. So you are basically abdicating your role as telling, teaching these students what the right side of this is. And you're going to quote unquote, allow them to think for themselves. But what that really means is you're not going to have the, the, the guts to defend the right side of this. Um, And I was like, oh, man. All right. Um, So I wrote this article because I really think that I am more and more skeptical of people who think that there is a correct position to come to and they know what it is. And probably to a lot of folks, that sounds like it's kind of a cop out. Maybe it is. Maybe that subconsciously it is. I don't know. But I'm more and more skeptical of folks who really see the world in that sort of what I would say is, and I'm not saying this about you, but I, I, I would say some activists I know of see the world in a very, a much more simple terms than I'm willing to see it. Um,
0: you know what's interesting? So I tell my students, um, I found myself repeating more than once this semester. Because I wanted to, as professors um, can often do, because I wanted to make sure they heard me when I mm. when I said it. Right, uh, I I said I found myself saying something to the effect of, "Remember that last time when I was saying how two people can be right at the same time but have the exact opposite beliefs?" And I and I explained how de- uh, depending on where a person is in their learning and and what kind of knowledge and experience and all the things they have they can really believe that they're right about something. And in that way, they're right about the thing that they think they're right about because based on what they know and what they've experienced and how they see things, they're right. And I was like, but you you could just as easily um, come into contact with somebody like me who has this other knowledge that that other person doesn't have and for all intents and purposes, I'm right. And I was like, so we can both be right, and and there might technically be a capital R right. There's a capital T truth, <laughs> right? Um, and that could be the case, but that doesn't make you wrong, or that doesn't make them wrong in the the this fake scenario that I was like giving them. Because ultimately, I think what is rotting away. The sort of underpinnings of our society and that that's probably an exaggeration but i'm gonna go with it with the hyperbole here um (laughs) i think what's rotting um away is like the willingness and capacity to see a human on the other side of whatever the thing is because as Mm -hmm. we were talking about earlier and this kind of kind of brings us 360s like people are so quick to demonize and make monsters of people who who think differently and disagree with whatever the fundamental point is and i think that is an atrocious way to see oneself and to see other people and f- to see fellow man so part of um part of why i actually agree with you and think it's interesting that you see us as perhaps being different in those fundamental ways is like part of my work through theory of racistness and as an educator is exactly is precisely what you're saying is like it is my inability to see another human being as a monster or a devil or as even necessarily wrong even though wink wink I know I'm right um I think I think one can know they're right about a thing based on the knowledge and the experience that they have, but still treat other people with love and compassion, and as if, um, and with the understanding that, as far as that person's concerned, they're right. And I think if we can get to a place where more people are encouraged to see themselves and other people in that way, I don't think, from from my perspective, what I'm trying to say is I don't think that means that we have to walk around not having convictions about any particular thing or not recognizing when we are right about a particular thing. Um, But I I think that we can be right and not be dismissive and not devalue other human beings based on the beliefs that they express and based on the knowledge they have or don't have or aren't privy to. And I think, I'm sorry. And the last thing I'll say is like, I think that, we do ourselves a disservice when we don't when we don't confront for ourselves other voices as I was saying earlier and when we don't help our students confront other voices just in the in the example that you gave for ex- because again it's a matter of testing one's ideas and if you are if you truly believe in your ideas in the quote unquote rightness or goodness of your ideas, then you can be confronted with any amount of, you know, evidence and perspective coming from the quote unquote other side and still feel confident in your own ideas. But if you never get confronted with the other side, um, then I think that I, I think that that is ultimately the sort of coward's way, coward's way out. Because and it's showing it's showing that you view your ideas as having an Achilles heel. So instead of exposing the Achilles heel by presenting these other this other information, we're just going to hide the other information. I think that that is how we get to the quagmires that we're in today as a society. And it's all detrimental to our own humanity and our ability to recognize the humanity in our brothers and sisters. And that's all bad.
1: Yeah, I, I think I think maybe the the difference is that, um, and maybe it's not a difference, but um, you know, this would take us in a whole different uh, direction that I don't know if we want to go down. But I mean, by worldview, I guess I'm sort of, um, you could say, f- fairly close to being a postmodernist. Um, so, I definitely agree with you that like we obviously don't want to lose seeing the humanity and the other side and the plausibility of other perspectives. But in a lot of cases, I really, I don't believe that there is that capital T truth that other people are convinced of. I believe that there's like, is there a way the world is? Yes. Can we know it outside of our interpretations that are always perspectival? No. So I guess when I see folks talking about, um, like, no, it's this is a really simple issue. Like, it's very clear that this is the right way it is. Uh, At that point, that's an opportunity for me to say, do I really want to engage with this person? Um, Because I don't think that a lot of the things that folks say really are just, this is just an obvious matter of fact. Like nothing's an obvious matter of fact. Fact is always dependent on how we interpret the things. Um, So... You know, like with the Kyle Rittenhouse trial, um, I think I was probably right where you were. I didn't really follow the trial that much. And I'm very honest about, like, I just had other things going on at the time. And obviously, I know that nothing I say is going to make the outcome any different than what, like, that's the jury. That's not me. So I saw a whole bunch of people on different sides saying, it's so obvious that dot, dot, dot. You know, that sounds like, it's so obvious that dot, dot, dot. And I'm like, does Johnny Cochran was absolutely right when he said trials are about interpretations. Trials are about who can weave the narrative that's the most compelling around these data points. So I felt like I couldn't engage with either side because that's what I would say. It's like, okay, but what you're saying is a clear matter of fact is a data point and different interpretations around that data point are possible. So have you ever entertained the other side of this thing? Um, and I found that like in, so in all really all cases, there was no counterexample. No one was willing to follow me there. Folks on the left would say, how dare you? Why would you ever entertain that this guy was acting in self-defense? And folks on the right were like, how dare you? Why would you ever entertain that this whole thing was an example of a white supremacist showing up and knowing he was going to use a gun? It's like, that's it. I'm out. I can't yeah.
0: do it. Yeah, no, I think I think we're um 100% more in agreement than is readily apparent to you because I'm mm. in my own brain so I know I can see the similarities um because that's how I view myself and in all matters um to the point of you know I don't just practice what I preach I question my own ideas I'm constantly in search for capital T truth I think that we can't necessarily, I think that there are some instances where there is a capital T truth and that that's rooted in material reality. That I I do think is, is true. <laughs> uh, but I also think that for most things and for most matters, we can be on a quest for capital T truth, but we can't ever necessarily know the truth. Or if we know the truth, we can't ever necessarily know that we know <laughs> that we know right. that we've arrived. Right. right. right? Yeah. And so for me, I'm constantly on, on a quest for a capital T truth, because I'm just trying to get as close as I can to the thing. And I think in, yeah. in being able to recognize and help other people do the same thing and think similarly and recognize that, um that the world is in what we consider to be knowledge is f- far more Complex and nuanced than we are taught to believe, I think that that is for the that is a recognition and a a type of knowledge as for the betterment of our human society. And I think the ways that people have and continue to cast the world in this sort of black and white way pun intended, (laughs) theory of racism. I think that is ultimately reflective of the same thing that I'm helping people out of, which is where my skepticism as it pertains to race comes into play. And it's why, it's it's at the core of why I help people work toward eliminativism, even if they don't jive with skepticism, because they can mm. be constructionists and be an eliminativist, because ultimately, one can look at el- the elimination part as, as a desire to eliminate the black and white ways of thinking that people think exist and see the world through, but that don't actually, I don't think is actually grounded in reality. I think the world is gray, right? More often than not, I think it's gray, which speaks to my um, concession that indeed the capital T truth, it's, it's a sort of uh, lifelong journey that one goes on. Right. Um, Right, I I want to mention my favorite author yeah yeah so percival everett um have you read anything by percival everett i feel i feel like i've probably told you about him before too because he is my favorite so uh he's a professor at the university of southern california he teaches creative writing and the first book i read by him was a book called erasure recently at in this week we read telephone in one of my classes his his 2020 publication um and the book Telephone, he has three different versions. And the way you know which version you have, on the cover of the book, there are three images of a hand holding a compass. And the top compass will be in a different position. The needle will be pointing in a different direction. That's how you know which which book you have. And hmm. each each book has slightly slight modifications to the plot. And, and the way that he writes is very postmodern, so very avant-garde and very very much precluding you from knowing everything about the book the right. protagonist is unreliable yeah. um he uses like six different languages like italian french spanish english latin like all the things he's the protagonist is a paleontologist. So he has like random paleontology and geology stuff interlaced throughout. And you don't know if you're not in that field, you don't know if it's real or if he's faking paleontology or (laughs) what it is. And you just have to go look it up. Sometimes a a single line, it'll be a name of a painting because in the book, they go to the Louvre in Paris and he'll just name a painting. And it has to do with the storyline but like if you're unfamiliar with the painting or you don't take the time to go look it up you're not going to know so there's so many ways in which to to me the sort of message of, and then when i think of the the game telephone right this idea that at the start a message is a certain thing but as it goes down the line it gets obscured so the capital T truth gets obscured but every single person will be convinced that they're relaying the the right message right and every single person will be convinced then that they are Right and in the know and it's not until you get to the end and then you share like how did it start versus how did it end that one can know the differences and the nuances and how it changed, right? Yeah. so I think I think of that and I'm like it's brilliant and it's it's timely. and part of my fascination and love for him is because he precludes us from really knowing that he's he's the type of writer that ends this story really at the beginning so you really don't know like what happens It's it can be irritating <laughs> yeah. but it's also like it's just so brilliant and yeah. Yeah. that's how i people talk a lot of smack about post-modernity i think the people who talk a lot of smack about it probably know the least about what it is but as a literary scholar i have a deep appreciation for it because post-modernity literary movements all the things um I think that that's naturally how my brain has been encouraged to see things and to look at things, and to help me see beyond the black and white. Ultimately, yeah. I, so I think it's a tool that can be useful for more people.
1: Yeah, I'm. I'm glad we're kind of foraying into this uh, actually, because I was. I've I've been thinking myself. I'm very influenced by. Um, I think Richard Rorty is probably one of the philosophers I identify with most. And he was pretty comfortable with the label postmodern. Gianni Vattimo, the Italian philosopher, is another. And really both of them said, um, they have very similar thought patterns. They basically say, yes, there's a world. Uh, There's a world that's independent of us. We don't just make up things arbitrarily. We can be wrong in our beliefs. But we can't know what that world is without interpretation. So, whenever you get into interpretative disagreements, the tendency is to say well what what really happened? why don't we get to what really happened let's figure out some unbiased way to get to what really happened and they said like yeah there's there's such a thing as being less biased in your life, and you should try to do that, but what you what what that doesn't do is lead you to an account of what really happened right there there's no let's give up on that idea you can the best we can do is get to beliefs that work and work better in practice, but we can't really." undue interpretation. And I guess like when I go back and read Rorty and Vatimo, one of my thoughts is that it's funny because the critique of postmodernism is that it's too illiberal. It leads to illiberalism. And my concern is that maybe it was too liberal because Vatimo and Rorty, and I think if you look at Leotard and, and those they all said like you know it's all interpretation and what this means is that we sh- we all need to get really comfortable with difference and we all need to become really kind of aware that that our thought is partial and that we should all be kind of less dogmatic about it we should allow for differences in interpretation and it's like i feel like the social media world has given us they predicted all of they predicted the social media world that we would all kind of Uh, that interpretation would kind of flourish, that we can't really monopolize thought anymore, we can't territorialize it anymore. But what happened with that is the opposite of what they thought would happen. We didn't become more tolerant of difference. We didn't become less strong and less strident in our beliefs. We became more strident in our beliefs. And I wonder, my theory is that we are more a believing animal than the postmodernists and really all of Western philosophy gave us credit for, you know, so Aristotle said we are the rational animal. What distinguishes us from the lower beasts, if you, if you will, is that we are the rational animal or capable of rational thought. I think that's correct. But I think if you look at what really distinguishes us from the, you know, my cat at home, let's say, is that we're the believing animal. My cat doesn't form beliefs in the way that humans form beliefs. So I feel like what what postmodernity did is it divested us of the ability to think that our beliefs just are uncontested truths. But what happened is that we want to believe so much. We want things to believe that when we fall into that sort of skepticism, we just dig in our heels. Postmodernists thought we would just be confronted with all of this kind of opposing interpretation and be like, oh, maybe we shouldn't believe so hard. But what we really did was we dug in our heels and said, no, I need to believe something. So I'm going to believe something strongly. Yeah. I I don't know if that makes sense to you, but it just, if I think about what like post post postmodernists predicted what was happening, they predicted this ideological factionization and that you can't monopolize truth, but I just think they were maybe naive about what the results of that would be
0: yeah because that also in my mind brings us 360 to the response to the um the publication Mm. (laughs) and when more eyeballs get to it then you know that's when people start publicly digging in their heels right uh because ultimately ultimately the way racialist ideology works is to keep people in black and white categories pun intended and when the when people have gone outside the bounds then they automatically get accused of being you know white supremacist or anti-black or racist or whatever and that's supposed to encourage the person to go back in the box um i think that i think that the fact that Certain polls show that people think that America is more racist now than ever before. Things like that show to me that that's exactly right. What you're saying is that we have, in a lot of ways, doubled and quadrupled and tripled down on certain ideas and certain ways of being and seeing the world such that there's a at least a nominal amount of resistance to ideas that dispel those kinds of neat notions and qualifications um and i you know I still think that I still think that a world in 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 which the philosophers you name described or imagined coming into fruition. Is the sort of ideal goal in a lot of ways, if if we're talking about goals and sort of hopeful outcomes, because the world that they imagine coming into fruition is a world that is not tolerant. Because I think that's actually a pejorative um, way of looking at things. But I think um, accepting and embracing of all of these different ways of being and seeing the world, and I, you know, from my perspective, it's hard for people to really understand this. But from my perspective, that means also knowing and accepting and embracing the fact, for example, that some people are going to be racist, that we cannot blot out from the earth or from this country or from any community, all racism. I think that, and I think one of the things we've talked about briefly before is like, I really get the distinct impression that many people have sort of absolutes and absolute truths in their minds when it comes to certain ends and they want to get there by any means but they really think that oh yeah we can get to a place where zero percent of people are racist there are zero percent incidents of racism but in my mind i'm like no that's not the goal the person who came to Mm -hmm. came came to me at twitter and called me anti-black and i'm just trying i'm just writing to white people the irony um that person i don't feel compelled to engage with them. I said, bless your heart. That's it. Um, that's my go-to like wording. Um, I don't feel compelled to engage with them unless they come to me in a more meaningful and sincere way, but I don't feel compelled to be, no, you have to see the world differently, free yourself, all this sort of stuff, because it's like, how condescending is that? But also, it's a fallacy that I'm not willing to let myself subscribe to this belief that everyone has to see the world this way, even though not for nothing, Kevin, I know this is a more liberatory way for people to see the world and a more unifying way for people to see the world. It's not my intent to get every single person to do it because I know that's not how humans work, you know? And I think, you know, it's not that I embrace bigotry or, hope for racist things to happen or feel happy when they do happen it's more it's just more of an acknowledgement of like human society is imperfect we will never be perfect so i don't think the goal should be perfection (laughs) and as great as it would be that's like saying america needs to get the the number of murder victims down to zero it's an admirable goal but that's not how human society works, you know. Right. Um, and as a philosopher and as somebody who's trained in literary studies, um, I think that my our, I think that our interests are very, very much aligned um, for all of the reasons I've expressed. And I would, mm-hmm. I would want. Oh, I I would I would want to just point out that. I don't feel, just as I don't feel inclined to respond to the, to the naysayer on Twitter, I don't actually feel inclined to engage with people who say certain things or the pro or the anti, you know, the for or the against. I don't feel inclined to actually engage in those kinds of conversations in the same ways you don't feel inclined to engage. And so I don't. Um, I focus on putting out information and knowledge and educating people and if people feel compelled to respond to me and it seems like, you know, they're coming from a sincere place or it's something quick and easy, like mistaking race for with ethnicity, for example, then I will go the extra mile and I'll reply and I'll say, well, actually, da da and I'll give an explanation. But I don't get in, you know, social media wars. I don't recommend other people get in social media wars. I don't. Uh, the Rittenhouse and stuff, the Ar- Ahmaud Arbery case. I, I've been completely silent until recently. A podcaster asked me about it. Um, been completely silent because I'm not. It's not even just that I don't um necessarily feel strongly either way. Admittedly, with right. Rittenhouse, I think the right decision was made. So I, in that case, I do feel strongly that the right decision was made because based on my knowledge of the case um i think it was self-defense and so it's that easy for me um with ahmaud arbery it's sort of the same thing based on my knowledge of the case i think the right decision was made those men were guilty right
1: um the only thing is people are going to wonder how like you can hold those two at the same time right because if you're a political conservative you're supposed to it's remarkable that political conservatives will almost always come out on the side of like if they're on the side of like the way you would expect a conservative to come out and and political progressives let's say on the other side so it's but i'm not but like, people
0: don't know my politics right because right, that's, i'm that's not true, a political conservative right um and right, so no, that's what
1: i'm saying it's going to jam people up it's going to be like oh wait a minute but didn't you come down in here but but on this other case why are you
0: yeah, no guess what? Because I tribe. because I'm always in search for the capital T truth, whether we want to think it exists or or it doesn't. I try to look at things as unbiased as as possible. I think that is the key and that is something that people don't uh, really aspire to do. The emphasis as unbiased as possible. And very few people are able to look at certain information, certain set of of data and have an unbiased interpretation of that same data. That's why we have some of the nonsensical discourse happening and battles happening now in the public sphere, because everyone is coming to the same information with an agenda more often than not. Right. And in that way, um, and in that way, everything is filtered through a certain way of, Of viewing the world and that might be cynical just as you said of of yourself that might be cynical but i think it's also not for nothing i think it's also true it's reality um and at least my efforts and when i do engage like on twitter it really is to help and present people with an alternative way of thinking about themselves in the world and just educating them about it. It's not to convince or persuade. It's not to strong arm. It's not to guilt trip. It's like literally here's an alternative to those two ways that you think exist are the only two ways. Here's a third alternative way to do the thing that gives more people what they want. And is it a perfect solution? No. Does it have to be a perfect solution? No. So people should stop. I I think people should really stop convincing themselves that there's only one or two ways to do anything or only one or two ways to think about a thing and encourage people and themselves to question everything, to present, to force yourself to engage in dialogue or not even dialogue, but engage with information that you think you disagree with to help your own thinking skills and things like that. Um, And the world would be vastly would look vastly different it would look certainly a lot closer to the to the image that the philosophers had in mind when they were thinking about the future and i think if more people more of us were coming from that sort of skeptical positionality and if more of us recognize the fact that so long as we have human beings we're never going to agree 100% on anything and that the world is far more complicated than we pretend that it is and that's okay because our attempts to order things actually create more disorder um I think we can actually get somewhere and I feel heartened and this also inspires my optimism. I feel heartened by the response that I get through my work and from my students. It's overwhelmingly positive. And so that also helps me stay positive and it also helps me know which battles to, to pursue and which ones to, to not pursue.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm tempted to, um, kind of go to, to, uh, it's it's ironic that that my motivation to use social media has decreased the more I've become a skeptic in certain ways um, of kind of the, the capital T version of truth. But like there's a philosopher that I've been kind of recently going back and rereading um, a, a Peronian skeptic named Sext- Sextus Empiricus who was kind of a proponent of the idea that one should try to stay away from firm beliefs. And the best way to do that was to try to keep accounts on all on all sides. If you think that like you're getting too firm in this one category, go out and kind of seek the other position and try to keep them equal in your brain. Um, now, of course that itself is hard work and that itself can ironically become a sort of dogmatism. It's like the dogmatism of always be open-minded to everything at all times. But it's like this tension that I feel between belief and skepticism. And I think that this, this is like, Probably the final resting place for like where I, where I come down at the end of the day. It's like there's this polarity that we have in our heads. I'll probably always, between we want to believe stuff. We can't just be open-minded about everything. You always wanna, we always want to believe stuff. It's, uh, doubt is uncomfortable. Belief is comfortable. But then there's this pull on the other side where we don't you know we want to maintain skepticism. And I just struggle with this polarity between in myself. I feel it, of course. I, you know, I want to believe things, even though I know that I don't want to become too firm in beliefs. It, it always ends up happening that some beliefs calcify over time. But then I, I want to go the other way, which is skepticism. Maybe I should open it up a little bit, become more like Sextus Empiricus. But of course, you can't live life all on that end either. Like you have to believe certain things just to get through our days. We're we're acting beings. We we're partial and our partiality leads to belief. So it's like this, this, this push and pull. And I feel like the more I try to go in that social media direction, the more I'm pulled toward that belief side. Mm. Um, And I'm trying to maintain that balance between, you know, between those.
0: Yeah. Um, Yeah. That's (laughs) so we have kind of similar fears um, with some slight modifications. So, so I'm, I've become really practiced at, at exposing myself to ideas that I used to think I couldn't see any value in. Truth.
1: Well, well you feels- are, I mean, it's, it's worth noting, by the way, before, sorry to interrupt, but you, you have changed your mind. On, so you know what this feels like, right? Because oh, you absolutely. used to be very, you, you would, the, the prior Sheena would have scoffed at the idea of racelessness, right? And then you kind of read more and read more and read more.
0: Yeah, I don't, I probably wouldn't have scoffed because I think I've always had, I, you know, I've grown certainly, but I've always had the ability to see things. I've always seen things differently. And that way I've been an outsider always. So even though I still was a constructionist, reconstructionist, as most Americans are taught to be, I still saw things very differently, which is how my brain got to where it is now.
1: But like you um, had to rewrite. I mean, you had to recalibrate your 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 dissertation, didn't you? No. Uh, if I, oh, okay. I thought no. I thought at some point you said, like you did research and you realized that maybe like you were on the wrong track and you should recalibrate your argument. Or I, I thought I no.
0: Re- w- one of my advisors um, wanted to gently push me into a different direction, away from the okay. idea of racelessness. I see away from the idea of racistness, but I refused uh, because that was my idea. And so I wasn't going to do it to appease. I wasn't going to change that to appease anyone, even recognizing that a dissertation, uh, the best dissertation is a done dissertation. Then you can go and do whatever you want in theory. Um, I was like, no, I'm going to make this case as compelling as I can. Then I, it was fine. I passed with distinction. Um, But, but it was, I so I've become very practiced at finding other voices, right, and presenting myself with information and ideas that initially or or a few years ago I would have had a really hard time pre- presenting myself with because I you get it's about emotions you get angry right or you get defensive or you just get sort of indignant like oh my gosh how can these people say these things and. And how can they say it in that way and things like that? But I became very practiced at presenting myself with that information. And um, there have been countless times, especially at the earlier stages of my work, where I would ask myself and have this fear of like, am am I the thing that I'm professing to try to solve, right? Am I racist? not am I racist but are my ideas racist that mm-hmm. was really at the core of what I was asking right? right am i in the trap the same trap i'm identifying for other people as being in am i in the trap um and 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 i've never been afraid to ask people you know including my advisor my advisor never for a second hesitated or thought that i was racist or my ideas were racist or or even that they were bad or misguided or or anything like that it was like she was really coming from the perspective of, uh, am I going to have a career on the other end of the PhD? Because to her mind, talking about eliminativism and racelessness and stuff like that, it was not going to get me a job. And she's like, once you get a job and you get in there, then you can start writing the things ostensibly that you were really interested in and you want to write. That was of her concern. That's not
1: true. They're going to tell you to wait for tenure. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that, like that six was- years
1: later, you can...
0: That was her concern. And it was a right concern. And I, I understood and like appreciated the concern, right. Um, But it turned out to also not be the case, largely because I had become so skilled at figuring out how to package the information to land well on more ears than not. And so when I show up to my job talk, and I present what I my research, they're fascinated by it. They're not scared. They're not like, is this the wrong idea like what's going on here everyone knows about theory of racist this is my first semester as a professor it's not hidden i shared the free journal of free black thought essay with everyone yesterday i got so many compliments and all, all this other um positive feedback so it's like literally the exact opposite reaction of what people expect mm-hmm. which also gives me hope that people aren't you know speaking of nuance and speaking of gray you know that they're not that they that what i think and see about people as being and inhabiting the gray space in the sort of center more often than not is true because it's proving to be true in my own life
1: um
0: but also you know but really at the core of what i was trying to say just now is this is this fact that i also am constantly and almost incessantly and probably obnoxiously always questioning my own ideas and always asking the hard questions of myself you know i ask my wife are we are we wrong though like Mm. are are we wrong about this like am i doing good work before theory of racistness really started picking up I, i was asking friends i mean i'm asking anyone who will listen you know um who I know their hearts and they ha- would, wouldn't say, say something just because they're trying to like, keep me down. Right. right. Um, uh, And I, you know, sometimes I wish I didn't have that much skepticism or that much ability to like question my own ideas in some ways to practice what I preach. Because sometimes, sometimes I just want to feel confident about my ideas. Right. Like there's, there's some power in that, but at the same time, because I'm constantly researching, including doing research on, on Twitter and elsewhere, because I'm constantly open to the possibility of being wrong, because I f- found myself to be wrong along the way, which is how I've had this extreme intellectual and, and emotional growth, um, that value and those benefits far outweigh the fact that I'm constantly asking myself, like, am I wrong? Hmm. (laughs) um and and i would rather find out that i'm wrong some of the things i've been wrong about have been happy wrongs right like the pervasiveness of racism for for example when i used to think of systemic racism i used to have particular ideas in my head i came to find out within the last 30 days even that some of those ideas were wrong Hmm. and it was hard it was hard to be wrong in some senses because i think it's hard to be wrong for most people but at the same time what i disproved even for myself by accident um it was actually a good discovery of yeah. like the reality and stuff like that so i'm actually happier and better for knowing that information as opposed to having this particular image or ideas in my brain so i so like you i also Work to keep a sort of healthy balance because I don't want to drive myself crazy. Always be like, Am I wrong? Am I racist? Am I doing the wrong thing? You know, but at the same time, I think if more people operated from that place, I just think of how much kinder people would be toward each other and how much less anger and divisiveness and hate there could be because ultimately, I think it's people's inability or unwillingness to do just that that causes part of the problems and this has also required a certain amount of trust in myself too and like you were saying you kind of worry about falling into the same trap that your skepticism wants to keep you from which is uh, having certain beliefs or having beliefs in such a manner that's like um, the antithesis of how your skepticism really would encourage you to work and for me it's like they're part of my questioning part of my skepticism was inflamed or increased by the fact that i was presenting myself with voices that i believe were fundamentally wrong about certain things mm. or in certain ways and so then i feared becoming what i'm listening to right in a way yeah. um and i <laughs> it, it's so it, it's, it is yeah. funny there is some humor to it but i i did have a fear like admittedly one of my fears for a long time was am i Am I a conservative? Am I becoming conservative? Like, right. which is such a strange thing to fear. But when you're living in a society that basically programs you to think that conservatives are the devil, then if you start to feel that you're ha- you're vibing with like conservative voices and stuff, there's a fear that comes with that for yeah. some people, right? There's a strong pride for other people, but a fear for other people. And so, that was a fear, and I had to grapple with that and recognize that my own sort of like humanity and faulty thinking when it comes to like, what do I think about conservatives and things like that? What does it mean to be conservative? All of those things. But it was admittedly, it was like, that was my reality um, at different points of my journey. And, but I don't, I think I'm better for it. I think I'm better Mm. for it because the sort of, insight that I gained from the my own process helps me have more empathy and compassion for other humans, you know, for other people who are going through similar things or who have such strong beliefs. And the only thing I've become firmer in believing really is that um what we think is true about what most people think is true about racism isn't true. That even I haven't arrived at the full, fullest truth, but I do feel like I'm at a version of truth that, that if more people learned about it, the world would be a better place and more people would be happy and we'd be more together than divided.
1: Hmm. I think we should probably uh, stop there, leave it there then. Anything else that, uh, that, that you want to say before we, before we sign off?
0: Um, just that I'm always glad to talk with you, Kevin. I really enjoy talking yeah. with you. I learn a lot from you. I and, feel the same. Um, I feel like we have really interesting conversations. So it's glad to be off of Twitter yeah. and in <laughs> this conversation with you. And I, I don't know. I mean, like you're,
1: you're you're tempting me to you're tempting me to reopen an account, but um, I'll, I'll have to <laughs> think about it long and hard before. But needless to say, I I feel the same, and I can't wait for the next one.
0: Yeah, same here. Thank you so much.
1: All right, Sheena Mason, good to talk to you. You too.
0: Bye-bye.